You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Eamon Dean, who is the author of a new book called Nine Lives, My Time as a West Top Spy Inside Al-Qaeda. He's co-author with two of our friends uh, here at the, the SpyCast that we've talked to before, Paul Cruikshank and Tim Lister of CNN. Uh, they've previously authored a book with Morton Storm uh, and now with Eamon Dean. Now, I'd give you his biography, but that's the whole podcast. So we're going to take the next 45 minutes to an hour and kind of give you his life. It's, a, it's an extraordinary life. It's one that uh, most of you haven't heard of this story. This is brand new. Uh, and if you want to talk about someone who uh, really understood the world of counterterrorism, not only from a person within, uh, but also got some pretty quick on-the-job training in how to fight terrorism from without, uh, this book is extraordinary. Uh, it's not often that we use those terms. I mean, we have a great room actually here right now. We have our executive director, Chris Costa, sitting in the room. And just before we started, he said this is one of the best books on counterterrorism he's ever read. And if you don't forget his bio, uh, he used to run the damn thing for the United States. So he knows what he's talking about when it comes to counterterrorism. So I highly recommend this. And as you hear this story play out, I think you're going to understand why we're so high on this. So, Eamon, thank you so much for joining us here on SpyCast. Thank you for having me. So this is really a memoir of your life. This is, you know, years and years coming together of the time you spent inside Al-Qaeda, but also the time you spent working for British intelligence against them. Uh, and the book sort of ends several years ago. So why now is the time to kind of write all this down? What made you decide to, to write this memoir and let the world know about your life? Well, I think the reason for writing the book, because the narrative was always monopolized by many segments uh, you know, within the extremist community, let's put it this way, globally. Um, they are the ones who monopolize the literature. Um, they present themselves as role models for young Muslims to follow. I mean, there hasn't been that many uh, stories about those who actually were fighting terrorism, and they were themselves Muslims. Um, you know, for, for once, the narrative need to be reclaimed, um, and that there need to, you know, the record need to be set straight that um, that there are many, many, many Muslims who 
risk their lives against terrorism. It's only uh, uh, you know, undercover, but also, you know, this book is dedicated to the thousands of uh, security services uh, personnel across the Muslim world, basically, who fought against terrorism, who died uh, in that process, whether in places like Egypt, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, Pakistan, Algeria, uh, Morocco, Tunisia. You know, we are talking about countless uh, people who gave their lives you know, to, in, to defeat terrorism. So I think, you know, it's time to highlight their stories also as well. I think you're right that there hasn't been a lot of books on this subject. There have been books by people who were Muslims for a time, turned against the religion, and then decided to fight against it. But there haven't been a lot of people who are still like yourself, a practicing Muslim, who want to show, you know, the world out there that you can be a deeply religious Muslim and still be against terrorism. Of course. At the end of the day, those who uh, fought against terrorism, they fought from the conviction that these terrorists hijacked Islam and they needed to free Islam from you know, their uh, grip. And you actually grew up in a, in a relatively conservative form of Islam. Can you talk a little bit about your upbringing, kind of your parents' influence and your family's influence, not just your parents, family's influence on your direction you took early in life? Well, I was born in Saudi Arabia, and I was born, you know, basically just, uh, you know, months before the year 1979, which was a, catas a catastrophic year, let's put it this way, uh, for, uh, you know, the Muslim world. Uh, first, we had the Iranian uh, Islamic Revolution, uh, which, uh, you know, turned, uh, you know, the Middle East upside down. We had the beginning of the Islamization of Pakistan. We had the uh, siege of the Grand Mosque in Mecca, where uh, militant Salafists, Wahhabis, basically, uh, took over the Grand Mosque in Mecca. Uh, that was that had an impact on Saudi Arabia. It actually made Saudi Arabia more in conservative, you know, in response to that uh, crisis, uh, rather than more moderate. And then you have the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Mix all of these together, and you have a catastrophic year uh, in, by any standard. So I grew up in that environment, and my mother even though I was born in Saudi Arabia, but my mother was from Lebanon. Uh, and the year I was born is the year when the Israelis invaded uh, South Lebanon. And uh, so for her, she was always worried about, you know, her family. And whoever escaped, uh, you know, South Lebanon from her family ended up, uh, you know, being surrounded by the civil war uh, that engulfed, you know, all of Lebanon. Lebanese war was basically a war that it was ethnic and religious at the same time. So my mother was really highly political, and that really affected all of us, you know, the six brothers uh, in that household. And I was the youngest. Um, my dad never had that great influence on me for a reason, and it's a sad reason, the fact that he died when I was only four. Um, and so for me, my mother was uh, the great influence in my life. Uh, she became more religious uh, in later life. I mean, for example, she never wore the hijab, basically, until really we moved firmly, basically, into Saudi Arabia. And even then, uh, she never became religious until after my father died. So it was really religious upbringing in many, in many ways. And you were the youngest. I mean, the youngest of a single mother. I bet you were doted on and, and there's a lot of attention paid to you growing up. 
Well, I mean, uh, yes, in, in many ways it was. I mean, basically, I was my mother's favorite for you know for a good reason. I was, <laughs> you know, I was the accident. Let's put it this way. <laughs> well, I think that goes cross cultures, right? I mean, I think a lot of American families, a lot of European families, can go, oh yeah, the youngest son of a bunch of kids. I know exactly kind of the relationship he had, <laughs> had with his mom. Your war really doesn't begin until the early 1990s, and it's a war that we've talked about before on this program because two people sitting in this room were, were had. A lot of experience in Bosnia in the 1990s, not quite as early as you did. Uh, we, we both, Chris and I, both got there in the, the latter half of the 1990s. But can you talk a little bit about the path that led you at a very young age, right? Born in 1979, early 1990s, or only in your teens at this point, the path that led you to want to serve in Bosnia? Well, I mean, in when I was about 12 and a half, um, I had the uh, I had to experience the bitterness of my mother's passing, mm. uh, so it was sudden. Uh, it was a brain aneurysm. So for me, it was uh, it, it was a period of pain. And for me, basically, I ended up reading Sayyid Qutb, who I think many of your listeners would recognize as the uh, Egyptian thinker, who uh, we can say basically is the godfather of the jihad ideology uh, of the 20th and 21st centuries. He wrote a book. Um, it's large. We're talking, you know, six volumes, four thousand pages, uh, and it's called uh, "In the Shades of Quran." He wrote that book over nine years period when he was in prison. So he wrote it from the from experience of pain he wa he was writing it you know and you can see his pain seeping through the pages and he was you know interpreting the quran in a way that was really resonating with me at that time so i more or less gulped everything including his interpretation of the jihad verses and the need for sacrifice and that without sacrifice there will be no advancement uh, of the faith he even used the uh, analogy of candles he said our words are dead and in like unlit candles the moment we die for these words for the sake of these words then they become alive you know these candles will be lit um, because only through sacrifice that our dreams will be realized I, know, I was so mesmerized by that. And what even made these words more powerful and resonating with me more so was the fact that my math teacher at that, at that time, his name was Osama Mansouri. His father was a brigadier general in the Ministry of Interior in Saudi Arabia, and his uncle was the Minister of Transportation. So he came from an affluent family, yet he was one of the most down-to-earth teachers I ever met in Saudi Arabia. He left in 1992 with a member of the Bahraini royal family. They were friends and they went to Bosnia and both of them died there. Mm. That was what brought the entire Bosnian conflict, which was raging 5,000 kilometers away, really, into our own classroom. And that what made me think that if someone from an affluent family could go and do that and actually um, sacrifice his own life for the people he barely know, just out of the sense of solidarity in faith, then he was a hero. I mean, he was the ultimate hero. This is He was one of those candles that were lit. Right. And your decision to go to Bosnia was somewhat of a snap judgment. It was one of these, you know what? Let's go to Bosnia. <laughs> the story's really funny. It's one of these, if I remember your, your friend or your associate was going to go, 
uh, and you're like, you know what? I'm going to go with you. It, it was it was really you know a surreal moment. Even even thinking about it right now, you know, twenty four years later, you know, oh my god, I feel old now. <laughs> I seriously feel old. Again. You're the youngest one in this room, I think. So keep going. You're good. <laughs> so so I remember I uh, was um, having dinner with his brother, and he told me, by the way, Khalid is uh, leaving uh, to Bosnia. Did he tell you that? I said no, he didn't tell me. He said well. Now is the time to say goodbye because he's leaving and he might never come back. I mean, he's going to a war zone. So you might as well go and say uh, your goodbyes. And you know, on the way to his home, formulating how do I, go, uh, how am I going to say goodbye? Uh, I decided no, I'm not going to say goodbye. I was going to say take me with you. And I think the decision was made really in an instant, but there were already two years of preparation for that. My teacher dying there, you know, the images and the footage of the Bosnian conflict, you know, being shown to us in videos and from the uh, perspective of a war waged by Christian fundamentalists in Serbia against the Muslims. So I was, maybe I was ready and I didn't know it. And then the trigger was, my friend, my childhood friend from the Muslim awareness circle I was part of is going, even though he was three years my senior. But nonetheless, I was always mixing with those who were you know, more senior to me. So I knocked on his door and I told him, well, your brother Muhammad just told me that you're leaving. And, you know, you know what, Khalid, you know, I want to go with you. And I remember he looked at me and he said, Oh dear, I mean, for, for God's sake, you know, you're 16. How on earth could I, could I take you? You know, this is war, I mean, this is, you know, war, not a picnic. People die, lose limbs, you know, uh, get wounded in the most horrific way. It's scary, bullets flying, you know, shells landing near, near you. Do you think really the jihad needs you? So I said, no, of course, Khalid, you know, the jihad doesn't need me, but I need it. That answer changed my life because he was actually, you know, telling me, you know, uh, years later that he was adamant not to take me, but that answer changed his mind. Right. So the book's called Nine Lies for a reason. Uh, you had several close calls uh, when you went to Bosnia, some where I don't know how you survived them, you know, how you got past them. Talk a little bit about your first experience, again, as a 16-year-old in a war zone, and that was not playing around war zone. I mean, the Serbs were incredibly powerful. This was a, uh, no, no one left to become prisoners. It was killing everything that moved. And you were fighting in the same way that uh, many of your predecessors had fought in Afghanistan, severely outnumbered, severely outgunned, uh, but fighting with faith. Uh, and that kind of ran you into some predicaments when you were first there. Talk a little bit about that early experience with combat. Well, my uh, first experience with uh, combat was with a spontaneous exchange of mortars. And so for the first time, you know, I got a crude education in how to distinguish between a mortar that is falling far and a mortar that's about to fall just <laughs> within meters. Um, so I've learned how to distinguish between the two sounds and basically went to duck and went to basically think, ah, it's far away. Yeah. So... You know, but nonetheless, I felt at the beginning that my heart was pumping really hard against my ribcage. But then later you start to feel your heart pumping inside your throat. Uh, I'm sure you've experienced that yourself before. Yes, that's how it was. I mean, it, you know, you feel fear, you know, uh, in a way I never felt it before. But at the same time, it wasn't, you know, the fear 
you know, that is ugly, but it was a beautiful fear. I don't know how to describe this, but I would no. say it was a beautiful, exhilarating fear. Well, I think there's an interesting combination there that we haven't talked a lot about is, is not only do you have the exhilaration of surviving combat, but it's combined with kind of the religious fervor that you have. I mean, we, I, anyone who's been in combat or any kind of combat situation, near-death experience, you have that kind of high, like, holy shit, I just survived that. How did I survive that? But also in your case, there is kind of this religious camaraderie with the people around you. I can imagine that took that to a level even higher. Well, we never looked at survival as something good or lucky. It's true. We looked at survival basically as something of a shame. Uh, you know, surviving, you know, uh, in, you know, a landmine, surviving a mortar shell, surviving a tank shell, surviving, you know, you hear a, you know, a bullet whiz by you. That means that you are not worthy of martyrdom. You haven't yet earned God pleasure. Let's put it this way. And I know it's a difficult concept for many of the listeners, but, you know, that is exactly what a jihadist, you know, mentality is all about, that... You should seek death as much as your enemy is seeking life. The, only then you will gain victory. Only then you can overcome your enemy's uh, superiority and adva advantage in terms of numbers and firepower. When did you start meeting some of the people who would later become, or at the time even were, the high-level leadership within Al-Qaeda? Because this book is a who's who of Al-Qaeda leadership. And even if you are a you know, casual reader or understanding of, of Al-Qaeda, you're going to recognize a lot of the names and the people you ran into personally during these mid-90s periods. You're going to start walk us through talking about KSM and eventually, of course, the man himself. Yeah. I mean, if I go chronologically, and I will do it so quick, I mean, first of all, the... Uh, my religious instructor when I was young and the one who taught me and my friend Khalid who we, we ended up going to uh, Bosnia was Yusuf Al-Ayeri who ended up basically being the leader of the first uh, the first leader of Al-Qaeda in Arabia in Saudi Arabia uh, after 9-11 Khalid himself the one I knocked on his door and he took me to Bosnia with him and later to the Philippines with him actually he came to the Philippines with me he became the second leader of Al-Qaeda in Saudi Arabia and then one of my fellow uh, trainees in the camps, uh, Abdul Aziz Al-Mikran, became the third leader of Al-Qaeda in Saudi Arabia. And one of our other uh, comrades in the camps in Bosnia, Salah Al-Ufi, he became the fourth leader of Al-Qaeda in Saudi Arabia. And, you know, the list is just goes on and on. And then suddenly out of nowhere, uh, I find that uh, near the end of the war in Bosnia, just when the Dayton Agreement was being discussed here in the U.S. between the warring parties, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed showed up, um, who later would become the architect of 9-11. He came to Bosnia because he thought that the war was about to, be, you know, uh, you know, to end. And what about the talent that this war nurtured? Let's put it this way. Right. You know, he saw that the war in Bosnia was really the beginning uh, of a much larger conflict. It was a war between Islam and Christianity from the point of view of the jihadists. Therefore, perfect. You know, America is, you know, in the opinion of Khal Sheikh Mohammed and his, uh, you know, uh, let's put it this way, uh, bosses in Sudan at that time, uh, Osama bin Laden, you know, Ayman al-Zawahiri, Abu Hafs al-Masri. From their point of view, the Bosnian war made clear to those who were rejecting the idea in the past that the West is the enemy. And therefore, finding talents from within that conflict is what 
خالد الشيخ محمد واز ذير تو دو اند ذات از وير هي مات رمز من الشيب يو نو هيز سكند ان كوماند ان تيرمز اوف بلاننج اند اكسكيوتينج ذا اتاكس اوف 9/11 ذات از وير هي مات هيم اند ذات از وير هي مات اولسو اذرز سو وين هي وين وي مات هيم I remember we were around him, uh, you know, in the, um, you know, uh, over food eating uh, in that uh, wedding. And he was telling us about how the conflict is going to change. We will no longer be running from one fringe conflict to another, you know, on the fringes of the Muslim world. But the entire conflict will change. You know, we will be fighting a war against a defined enemy to expel him out of uh, the Muslim world, which is the Americans. Mm-hmm. He, for him, America was... the defined enemy and he believed that fighting wars on the fringes is a waste of time waste of lives and that's exactly what Osama bin Laden uh, believed in fact Osama bin Laden was one of those who was vociferous about uh, you know about, about the war in Bosnia he discouraged people from going there so by the end of the war when he realized the war is about to end he sent one of his people to look for uh, a talent let's put it this way to bring them into Afghanistan and Khalid Mohammed was telling everyone You want to be part of this conflict. You want to prepare for this conflict. You have to come to Afghanistan because the train, training camps are reopening. Uh, but tra- training camps like Khaldan, Al-Farooq, Jawar, Siddiq, you know, um, uh, even in Darunta, uh, like Abu Rauda camp, Asadullah camp, you know, Abu Khabab camp, Asadullah, you know, the, all of these you know, camps were all reopening. And he said, go to there because only by gaining experience, only by gaining, you know, extra military experience, you will be useful in the conflict that is about to come. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Let me take a step out because we, when I met you last week, we talked about this and it was it's something that's always bothered me. And I, certainly by reading your book, it kind of brought that back. And I think Chris may feel the same way is when we were deployed to Bosnia in the 90s, we were actually told we were going there to protect the Muslims who had been massacred by the Serbs. And so a lot of us actually went in there saying, you know what, we're doing a good thing here, right? You have the Serbs who are the bad guys. you know, who are, you know, going to Srebrenica and killing every man, woman, child, dog, cat, everything else. And if it wasn't for NATO and some of the Russians, then the Serbs would have just wiped completely genocidal massacre of all the Muslims in Bosnia. And so we were there as NATO to make sure the Muslims could live in peace and not be messed with. 
But you guys had a very different perspective of the Americans and NATO coming in there. It was really the polar opposite of what we thought we were doing when we were there. Well, you see, um, at that time, there wasn't that much, um, you know, a flow of information. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can tell you the concept of fake news uh, existed even then. So we were told at the time that the war in Bosnia was really a, a, a you know, a, a Christian uh, war in its nature, and it's supported by the entire West. Um, years later, when I started reading about the history of the conflict, I realized, well, the Balkan was always a mess, uh, and that it was Serbian nationalism, maybe cloaked in some uh, Christian symbology, but nonetheless, uh, it's an Orthodox Christian symbology. Um, but the first victim of the Serbian, uh, you know, genocidal streak were not actually the Bosnian Muslims, but it was the Catholic Croats, yep. you know, who were at the receiving end. Uh, of that. But of course, we were never told that. We were told basically this is the story. You know, the West is uh, completely behind the Serbs. They are protecting the Serbs. Uh, they are allowing them to kill Muslims. And that's it. We were fed that propaganda. Uh, and there was no way of actually receiving um, unbiased news. Let's put it this way. Um, so even then, the concept of fake news uh, helped fuel the hatred and anger and frustration of young Muslims uh, against not just only the West, but even the United Nations, to the point where uh, there were so many accusations, I remember, by many members of the clergy within the Muslim world against uh, Butros Butros Ghali, mm. uh, the Secretary General of the United Nations at the time, because they said, look, He's a Christian Coptic Orthodox, and the Serbs are Orthodox. He is covering up for their crimes. Therefore, he is to blame. This is a crusade against Islam and Muslims, and we must respond, uh, you know, in a, a, a similar manner, a holy war, a holy jihad. And at this point, you were not officially part of Al-Qaeda. Very few people were actually officially part of Al-Qaeda at this point. Let, let's work our way up, and, and you don't have to belabor it, because in the book, it's a it's a nice, interesting, you really understand that, that evolution that finally gets you to want to join. But let, let's kind of deal with the 96, 97 period of your decision to join this kind of, at the time, upstart kind of fringe terrorist organization. Well, you know, for the benefit of your listeners, um, through many twists and turns, <laughs> I ended up basically in the middle of 1996 in Afghanistan. So imagine, this is now... July 1996, I was in a camp called Abrauda. Um, it's just outside of Jalalabad, near uh, Jalalabad uh, Dam. Um, and we just heard that uh, a plane landed uh, not far away from us uh, in Jalalabad carrying Bin Laden and uh, the entire Al-Qaeda apparatus from Sudan. So, you know, of course for us that was a shock. I mean, first of all, he was expelled from Sudan. Uh, we thought, wow, he was betrayed, you know, definitely. You know, Sarabi al-Bashir, these duo definitely expelled him and took over his money, uh, so, and investments and everything. So, and then, uh, you, know, uh, you know, maybe maybe between 9 to 10, 11 days later, basically, we heard that he was, you know, asking if there are any uh, people from Saudi Arabia and the Gulf uh, in the vicinity. So, of course, we were in the vicinity. He was staying 
in Yunus Khalos compound, Yunus Khalos was one of the warlords uh, of the Afghan uh, jihad against uh, the Soviets, who stayed out of the uh, civil war between the Mujahideen between 1992 until 1996. So he had a compound between Jalalabad and the Jaji Mountains. Uh, Tora Bora, for many people, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and uh, just on the slopes of you know, Tora Bora, he had this big compound, but dusty, you know, uh, compound where he hosted Bin Laden. So we decided, okay, fine, you know, we will, uh, you know, uh, go and visit him since basically he was asking for people from the Arabian Peninsula. And so 14 of us, you know, crowded <laughs> and you know, squeezed into the back of a pickup uh, car. And we were just going there. And some of us basically were joking, you know, basically going all the way. We were saying, bah, you know, <laughs> just to, <laughs> you know, uh, feeling like, and just, you know, feeling that we were cattle possibly or even worse. So once we arrived there, we, you know, realized that we were, you know, it, it was as if arriving at a refugee camp. And this is exactly what Bin Laden and his people were. Refugees just arriving from Sudan, disheveled, feeling disorganized. And when we met him, uh, Abu Hafsa Masri was with him, um, but uh, Ayman Zawahri wasn't. And for, you know, interesting story, you know, if you want to find out in this in the book, but uh, as to why uh, Zawahri wasn't there, he was somewhere else <laughs> detained. But um, when we met him, we felt that, you know, we asked him, you know, a few questions about his plans for the future. And he was quoting certain prophecies, you know, from, um, you know, ancient Islamic text about, uh, you know, Khurasan, uh, what he meant by that Afghanistan and eastern Iran and parts of Pakistan, which uh, the prophesized and foretold armies of Islam, you know, will march all the way to Jerusalem and Arabia and liberate uh, both uh, from, uh, you know, tyrannical rule. Um, and he was talking about the Americans and the need to expel them after the Middle East in order to create uh, that uh, ideal society uh, for the Mahdi, the you know the Sunni Muslim version of the Messiah, basically, um, you know to arrive back and to cleanse uh, you know uh, the Muslim world uh, of injustice and restore justice um, uh, to you know to the Muslim Ummah or the Muslim nation. So. Uh, you know, we felt that basically it was more of a talk of a dreamer at the time. And we were looking, okay, you know, but what are your plans? What are your actual plans? And I remember Abu House was saying, join us and we'll tell you. But, <laughs> you know, you know, we will not like tell you our plans. Uh, we thought basically it was a bluff because, come on, guys, you're refugees here. Like, I mean, you just arrived and, you know, you have, you know, you, we, we, do, we don't see any, you know, real strategy yet. So we left. Most of us were in doubt. And yet... You know, some of the people joined later, and some of them carried out suicide bombings on behalf of Al Qaeda in Nairobi. One of them basically did that. Um, so, in yeah, I'm sorry, specifically, uh, one person that you did with there was the van driver of the embassy. Indeed, right? He was, and um, you know, even though we were skeptical, um, however, a year later, you know, uh, many of us joined. Why? For me, I think it was the charm offensive that Al-Qaeda was doing at the time to really attract people from the from Saudi Arabia and from the Gulf countries uh, to join uh, Al-Qaeda. I remember, uh, you know, in August of 1997, just a year later, exactly a year later, um, I ran into uh, Abu Hamza al-Ghamdi. Abu Hamza al-Ghamdi was the head of Bin Laden's bodyguard. Charming man, you know, uh, you know, amazing sense of humor, and you know, uh, you know, as someone basically, you really, 
become a friend with instantly. Um, and so he took me around the streets of Jalalabad and he used, you know, a toxic mix of theology, ideology, and prophecies to convince me that it is the right thing to do. He told me basically that, look, the war is changing. You know, there are no more Bosnias or Chechnyas or anything like that, basically. I mean, the conflict is all about expelling the Americans out of the Middle East, out of the Muslim world, and restoring the caliphate. Because if you think the prophecies I recited to you right now about the black banners rising from Khorasan uh, in Afghanistan, about the three armies of Iraq, of Syria, of Yemen, can you believe it? We're talking of, in 1997, yeah. we're talking about Iraq, Syria, Yemen. So... He, he told me these prophecies are not going to fulfill themselves. Who do you think will fulfill them? Aliens from Mars, <laughs> you know, landing here and just, you know, helping us? No. And it will not, it will be, it will be people like us because we are God's instruments. Because, you know, for me, it felt as if, are we forcing God's hand here? And he said, no, because who will be if it wasn't for us? And the age of prophecies has been triggered by the return of the Jews to the Holy Land in, in 1967. Uh, and therefore, uh, by their arrival, mean that the age of prophecies has begun. And therefore, we have to play our part. Do you want to play your part or do you want to be on the sideline of history watching, you know, history goes by the caravan passing, or do you want to join the caravan? By the way, joining the caravan was always, you know, uh, one of the phrases that Al-Qaeda always use. This is how I always say, which means join the caravan. Because the caravan, you know, for an Arab, you know, who growing up in Arabia, is, you know, so one of those nostalgic, you know, concept of journey, of exploration. You know, you know the caravan is the equivalent of explorers going to explore, uh, you know, let's say the Wild West in America, for right. example, and the Pacific Coast, or going to the Antarctic and, uh, you know, or, you know, or, or Columbus, you know, discovering America. So it's the same thing here. And so he used all of this on you know, a geeky, nerdy boy like myself, basically. <laughs> and I was only 19 at the time. So I said yes. And you didn't just kind of join up randomly. You gave your oath to Al-Qaeda in a very specific way. And I think that the, the, the listeners will... It, it, my mouth drops because I just kind of imagine this room that you're doing. You're going to set that up for us a little bit and, and how that happens. It it. It's pretty monumental now, kind of looking back at it. Maybe it was even as monumental for you at the time. When, I remember when, um, uh, when I said yes, Abu Hamza al-Ghamdi uh, basically traveled to Kandahar and he said basically within a few days, just like you know, follow me. And so I went all the way to Kandahar. It took two days basically. I mean, you have to go from Jalabad to Kabul, from Kabul all the way to Ghazni, from Ghazni all the way to Kandahar, it took forever. So, and as soon as I arrived, basically, I felt as if I have traveled over the surface of the moon. Like, and I mean, really, I mean, <laughs> uh, such a bad uh, highway. And um, if you can call it highway, basically, I mean. Um, and so when I arrived in Tarnak Farms, it was just near um, uh, Kandahar airport. It was just brand new place for them. But even then, it was just remnants of the Soviet, uh, you know, uh, and communist buildings there. Um, I just you know had my meal i you know prayed uh, you know the uh, you know early prayers and basically i was told you know that within 
فيو مينس يو نو حمزه غامدي ويل كم اند تيك يو تو سي ويل ذا يوز تو كول هيم شيخ ابو عبد الله ذاتس وات بيبل انسايد ذا كامب ويل كول هيم ويت مينز شيخ اسامه بن لادن ذاتس هاو ذي يوز تو كول هيم ريفير تو هيم اند ذي توك مي ذير ات واز ريلي ا سمول روم اي مين وي توكينج ريلي اباوت A room that is almost two meters by about four meters. That's it. Um, and there were some books there uh, with bookshelves. And there was this little small mattress, really thin mattress on the floor. Um, it's not a sleeping mattress, but a sitting mattress for mm-hmm. those who, uh, you know, been to Afghanistan before or to the Arab world or to Yemen. It's similar. Um, and I remember I sat there, you know, and, you know, Osama bin Laden walked in. as tall as everyone basically described him to be. And when I saw him, completely different from the Osama bin Laden of a year ago. Mm. A year ago, basically, he had he wasn't wearing a turban. Uh, when I saw him the first time, basically, he was wearing the Arab scarf, and it looks so scruffy. Now he's wearing a turban that looks so neat. Um, and everything about him basically looked clean and tidy. Uh, he did not look, you know, tired. He looked... fresh and uh, uh, not as someone basically who's been chased out of a country right. but someone who's confident so suddenly you know you know the whole regrouping of al-qaeda let's put it this way you know was manifesting itself in him you know and the way he looked and so uh, i immediately you know uh, gave him the customary hug basically like and i mean that uh, you give like another you know, two and you know, once one on the right uh, side one on the left side and then you sit down knees almost touching and uh, then Abu Hamza Ghamdi like and went into uh, explanation that this is the uh, young uh, hybrid Saudi Bahraini guy I told you about and um, and he asked me about uh, you know of course he will ask you about the family where you come from and um, and what you did in Afghanistan when you arrived and uh, Bosnia I mean basically and what uh, you know uh, what did I do what did I do there who I met there and then he You know, first of all, he told me about the importance of the project that I am going to pledge an allegiance to. Remember, he wasn't saying to me that you're pledging allegiance to me. No, right. for him, it wasn't about him. And he made it absolutely clear. It's not about me or you. This is a war that will last generations. And it will culminate in the restoration of the caliphate. Therefore, you know, it's going to take a long time. We're only... you know, uh, you know, part of that. We will play our part right. in that uh, conflict. So before you do, remember that you will be answering to God. You are, you are answerable to God once you give this allegiance. Um, so I, when he said to me, Mradi, Mradi, so I, you know, basically he uh, extended his hand. I took it. So basically it's a handshake. Uh, many people think it's, a, you know, you have a copy of the Quran or whatever. No. Uh, Salafists don't use that. <laughs> Maybe the Muslim Brotherhood use that, but not the Salafists. The Salafists, no. They never use a copy of the Quran. Basically, just a handshake. And you swear the oath of allegiance, and you recite the oath. Simple as that. Absolutely. So that was 97. Um, you were ready to join Al-Qaeda. You had just pledged your allegiance not to bin Laden, but to the idea of Al-Qaeda. Um, but by 98, or certain by events in 1998, you had starting to doubt about what you had just decided to do. What was the turning point uh, for you? Uh, in for about 10 years or so, not quite, but close to, you were ready to go. You're ready to, to kind of fight the good fight. 
And then there were moments, and you already kind of hinted at them, in 1998 where your, your faith was tested and you kind of had to kind of come to terms with what you had decided to do. I mean, there were some nagging concerns at the beginning. I mean, I, being nerdy, I mean, the Al-Qaeda assigned me uh, to uh, Abu Khabab camp for uh, the benefit of the listeners. Abu Khabab camp is, uh, let's put it this way, it's a lab, it's a specialist lab where they were experimenting in explosives, uh, chemical weapons, poisons, you know, rudimentary biological weapons. So uh, they thought basically I will be uh, better suited there than you know being a commando. I mean, basically, I you know I'm not built for that. Or <laughs> so instead of the handlebars, you were out doing the uh, absolutely. Yeah, I thought I would be more useful there, and you know, and, the, and for the first few weeks, I was so you know excited. I was thinking that's exactly what chemistry should be. I mean, why chemistry has to be so dull in school? I mean, here you mix few things and then boom. I mean, that's it. I mean, and you know, you see, you know, the result of your labor basically. I mean, you know, in big, you know, dust dusty plume basically <laughs> i mean rising from the ground and you feel so elated but then when you move towards experiments on poisons and chemical weapons this is basically when things start to really nag you i mean these things are not something to be used in the battlefield you know in the classical right. soldier to soldier battlefield where you know you're fighting against an enemy these are to be deployed you know you know against civilian targets um, places like movie theaters, uh, places like sporting venues, nightclubs, uh, bars, um, uh, even, you know, public transport. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was uh, a rather, you know, alarming that I am participating in something that could be used against civilians. But then you ask the questions, and one of the uh, people that were with me in that camp uh, getting the same training um, I mean, he was a total psychopath. Let's put it this way. We were only four in that camp training with Abu Khabab. Um, and so, and why? Because he always made sure there were no more than four or five because that limited the possibility of a mistake. <laughs> I remember he told us the first day, guys, this is these are chemicals, not potatoes. And the first mistake will be the last mistake. You will not live to make another mistake. And really, if any health and safety inspector from the West were to be there and see exactly the conditions we were working in, he would have a heart attack immediately. <laughs> uh, so, so, so I, I remember the. I had a Tunisian colleague, Tunisian, you know, uh, fellow jihadist there, you know, working with us on the experiments, and he was an absolute psychopath in every single way. He was saying to us that. Forget it. There are no civilians in the West. They pay taxes, you know, and therefore they participate in supporting their government's military, and therefore there are no civilians. Everyone there is a combatant, every man and woman. So I remember I added a sentence, you know, a word. I said, and child. And he said, you know, God will sort them out. If children die, sorry, but God will sort them out. The most important thing is to weaken the foundations of their civilization. That's the most important thing. And I remember, and, and this man in later life would become one of ISIS's most important operatives in North Africa. He was responsible for two of the deadliest attacks in Tunisia uh, against the Bardo uh, Museum and then against the Sousse um, uh, beach where at least 38 British tourists were killed there. So. 
you know, and then he was later apprehended uh, and uh, imprisoned in Tunisia. But nonetheless, that was one of my uh, colleagues there right. in the camp. So, you know, all these years never changed him. 20 years never changed him. But for me, less than 20 weeks was enough basically to change me. And that's when the attacks in East Africa happened. As you know, uh, Al-Qaeda carried out uh, two attacks against the American embassies uh, in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam. And I remember we were uh, in a Farouk camp. I was visiting there when I heard lots of celebratory gunfire. And I went out you know, with other uh, fellow jihadists to ask what's going on. And they said, rejoice. The largest CIA station in East Africa has been raised to the ground by the power and grace of God and the Mujahideen. And so I was thinking CIA station. I mean, basically, that's, you know, in our terminology is a legitimate target. So, it's so be it. it gets, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a CIA. So, but then, you know, I was lucky because, you know, some of us had personal radio so we can listen to the news, you know, either uh, BBC, uh, Arabic service, or sometimes even Radio Kuwait used to carry over the airwaves all the way to us in Afghanistan. So we listened to the details and I listened. And this is where the details started to really give me a shock. The fact of the matter is it was actually the American embassies, not CIA stations, and that 12 American diplomats were killed, but alongside them, 220 innocent Kenyan civilians were killed, 5,000 people were wounded, 150 of them were blinded for life. The death toll and the number of horrific casualties were really shocking. And I remember I was thinking, okay, now joining the theory, you know, um, believing in the theory, uh, you know, uh, studying the theory is very different from seeing it applied in practice. And suddenly you start to see not only the act itself and its brutality, but you focus on two things apart from that also the consequences of that act and what does it mean for us as Muslims around the world and also the justification for it. I mean, I went to Sheikh Abu Abdullah al-Muhajir who was the dean of the newly established Sharia College, uh, Al-Qaeda established in uh, Afghanistan. And I asked him the question, I said, look, it's not like I'm doubting you or anything, but as, uh, you know, Abraham said in the Quran to God, uh, you know, show me how you resurrect the dead. He said, didn't you believe? And he said, I believe, but, you know, just so my heart be at peace. So God showed him how he resurrected the dead birds out of the ground. And, you know, and so I told him, just like Abraham, just so my heart be at peace. So he said, yes, we have a fatwa. And this fatwa is called the Tatarus fatwa, which means a human shield fatwa. It's an edict uh, from the 13th century. Um, so I said, okay, where do I find it? Uh, where do I find it? And he said to me, well, you, ha you have to find it in the comprehensive works of Ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Taymiyyah is an important scholar for uh, almost every jihadist now you know, on earth, let's put it this way. And he lived 700 years ago in the 13th century. The problem is the comprehensive works of Ibn Taymiyyah uh, were not available in that camp. It's 37 volume you know, work. So I have to uh, go to Al-Qaeda's headquarters in Kabul and there they have a big library. I, I loved spending lots of time there in that library. And so uh, the, in, the index of 
that work basically were two volumes alone and so <laughs> i was looking and looking through until I, fi- I finally found that i will find it in the 28th volume open the uh, fatwa to see that it bears no resemblance whatsoever and how it was applied in the 13th century and how it was applied in the 20th late 20th century the fatwa was actually uh, a confirmation of earlier fatwas it was about the mongol invasions of the muslim world and how the mongols used to sack one city take the you know uh, some civilian inhabitants from that city muslim civilian inhabitants coerce them into pushing the siege towers their own siege towers towards the walls of the next muslim city to sack it so if they are if they die by the arrows and spears of the defenders so be it i mean they are expendable they are not mongols so the muslim defenders of these cities sent urgent requests for fatwas asking are we allowed to kill our own fellow muslims if they are coerced into pushing the siege towers towards our own walls and the answer was yes you can these are used as human shields they are already dead anyway you know they already count as martyrs mm. so whether by your hands or by the mongols hands you know their fate is in god's hand now you defend yourself i read that and i was really in shock because basically i thought I didn't see the American embassies in Nairobi and Tanzania pushing siege towers right. towards Mecca or Medina. Um, and there was no life and death situation there where, you know, you need to actually, you know, blow up the American embassy today or you will die, right. you know, as a result. And well, they were I, counting on you not looking it up. They were counting on you or if you looked it up, not understanding it. Blind obedience, yeah. you know, blind obedience, blind trust, that's it. I mean, we told you so, that's it, accept it, move on. But, you know, I'm an inquisitive person. Um, and, you know, I do not just, you know, submit my mind to someone else to think on my behalf. And therefore, I felt that the act itself, the twisting of the justification for it, and the consequences of it, these three things combined to convince me that this is no longer for me. And while I did not wake up that morning thinking I'll be a spy, <laughs> that's it. I'm going like, mean, to betray everything I believed in, you know, uh, the past, uh, you know, uh, several years. But nonetheless, it was enough for me to think about where to go next. You want to be a history teacher, right? You wanted to join, join the, the ranks of the... Glorious and well-paid history teachers. <laughs> All of us driving around in our Benzes and everything. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think that story is really interesting. I mean, I think that you you really, like you said, you did not des- decide to be a spy. You just wanted to quit. You just wanted to say, you know what? I'm going to walk away from this. But the Qataris had other ideas. Yes. I mean... It helped that the year earlier I had, uh, I, you know, well, I, ha- I almost had another brush with death, but this time uh, not, you know, with bullets or explosives or landmines or anything. It was actually uh, a combination of malaria and typhoid uh, hitting me at the same time. Not a, not a good, not a good thing to have. Yes, <laughs> opposite them, symptoms. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're cold and yet you're sweating. Yeah. You know, you're shivering and yet you're feeling hot. Um, so you're body is so confused and you lose half of your weight and so I was really in a delirious situation so I I went to Qatar for a treatment which was amazing and what happened is when 
when I was going to Doha, to Qatar, uh, I was flying from Peshawar, which is against all protocols of Al-Qaeda, but because basically I was so sick, you know, there was no question that I have to be uh, flying from Doha, uh, sorry, from Peshawar, straight to Doha. And breaking protocols even further, the Al-Qaeda's man in Peshawar, Abu Zubaydah. I, I think people might know that name, Abu <laughs> Zubaydah, okay. Yeah. yeah. So Abu Zubaydah, I remember, I remember he was looking at me almost dying, you know, and he was looking at me and he was thinking, poor you, like, you know, you have to write your will. I know, and he was telling me, by the way, the suitcase you have is really amazing, and the jacket also you have is high quality. <laughs> you know, include me in your will, please. Like, you know, I mean, so <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, oh dear, like, you, know, you inherit me while I'm still alive. <laughs> so he, he decided that I was too sick to be taken to a payphone. And I think he, you know, out of you know, concern and pity for me, basically, he just handed me his mobile phone his cell phone and he said you know your friends in Doha call them from here and so I made that call and that call changed you know the course of my life completely yeah because they already kind of knew who Abu Zubaydah was you calling from his phone was set off some red flags exactly the French were actually um, you know uh, having surveillance on his phone and they identified which people I uh, contacted uh, using his phone in Doha so when I left Doha back to Afghanistan um, after I recovered these people actually were questioned and they were told oh well he will have to come back you know in a year or so uh, for treatment so they said if he calls and he says he's coming for treatment enough to check up mm -hmm. uh, if there is any lasting damage tell him to come and just let us know so a year later when I decided to use that excuse in late 1998 as a way of going to Qatar and drifting away from Al-Qaeda and getting out of all of this, I landed there. I called my friend and I landed there and he didn't signal to me that there is anything to be concerned about. So spent the first day, I was telling him about all my plans, you know, of uh, getting into university here, you know, becoming, you know, a history teacher in the future. Um, but then the next day he told me, well, look, I've been called just now. Um, and I was told to take you to the headquarters of the uh, Qatari security services. So I looked at him and I said, just do it. You know, I don't blame him at all. He was really apologetic. I said, don't apologize. You know, uh, it's like we're all under their mercy anyway. So just drive me there. And it said already there is a car ahead of us. There is a car behind yeah. us. So <laughs> don't worry. Yeah, much of a choice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he took me there. And for nine days, I was their guest. And I remember, you know, the first, you know, half an hour, it was supposed to be an intimidating scene. I mean, there were many of them, you know, many of the officers of the Qatari services, you know, sitting in front of me and, uh, you know, uh, and the lighting in the room was intimidating, you know, uh, half bright, half dark. And, and uh, they were telling me about how important it is I cooperate or, you know, basically I will suffer the consequences and everything. And I was looking at them amused, actually. Um, <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, you should have tried to get a bunch of stuff out of them. Absolutely. Like, no, I'm not going to unless yeah. you give me. <laughs> Within hours, they were ordering, you know, food from the Sheraton, you know, and they were laughing and joking with me, and it became such a jovial, I mean, <laughs> and cordial, um, you know, atmosphere because, 
you know, they realized I was cooperating and that I was happy to give them whatever they want. And they asked me, why is so easy? I mean, you know, uh, as if like, you know, I can tell they were disappointed. I mean, they wanted really to, you know, exercise some enhanced interrogation. Yeah. They wanted to turn the screws <laughs> on you. Exactly. But I wasn't like, you know, giving them the satisfaction. So, um, so I said, you know, guys, you just caught me at the right moment. Um, and I told them exactly, you know, how I felt in the, for the past, uh, you know, three and a half months or so, and that I was coming here to leave all of this behind me. Um, and, you know, I remember by the end of that session, they were all, you know, patting me on the back and basically saying, you know, it was the right thing to do. And they said, will you help us basically with the Abu inquiries? Because that's important for the, for our friends, you know, the French. So they were really open with me completely about who they were obtaining the information for. And they told me exactly why. They said, well, you know, since you already, you know, hate the idea of targeting civilians, you know, you know, it will it will not please you to know that your friend Abu Zubaydah was involved, or that's what the French suspect, involved in the 1995 uh, Paris metro bombings. And therefore they have a great interest in him. I said, yes, actually, I know a bit about that. You know, he himself was bragging about the fact that he secured some documents for those, mm -hmm. you know, who uh, participated in that attack. So I gave them exactly what they want. And within nine days, after nine days of de debriefing and going over things, and sometimes basically they left me all alone for the weekend, uh, you know, you know, still with good food and everything right. <laughs> um, and good sleeping, uh, you know, place. Um, they told me, well, we admire the fact that you want to leave that life behind you. We admire the fact that you want to become a history teacher and you want to live with us here and we would love for you to live with us here. But Qatar at the time was a country of 250,000 people. Basically, it's just a, a small suburb of New York. Let's put it this right. way. Yeah. yeah, you could run into people, you know, you know, every day. And I was actually in the first in the time I went to Doha, I was running into people I know every day. So... I was told that you have to be under the protection of a much bigger uh, country, much bigger agency, uh, who would you know, look after you, protect you, and at the same time, all you have to do is debrief them. You don't have to work for them, just mm -hmm. debrief them, and you, know, you will be in a much better uh, you know, uh, condition. And I remember I was thinking, is that kind of spying? Am I going to be a spy? Like, you know, you know, and I said, okay, you know, who do you have in mind? And they said, well, the Americans, the French, and the British, and you have to decide in half an hour, <laughs> you know. And the fact that my grandfather fought for the British uh, in Iraq uh, in the First World War and beyond even, he served as a major uh, and the head of the colonial police in Basra, actually, uh, from 19, um, uh, I think from 1919 until 1926, so that was seven years, you know, uh, service after the f uh, First World War. So. I thought that would be an, you know, a, a better option uh, since I've been to London also before uh, on a mission for Al-Qaeda. That in the familiarity mm -hmm. played a part. So I don't need to learn French. I wasn't, you know, I don't like the language actually, to be honest. Sorry about that. Um, if there are any Fr French listeners, I didn't mean any offense, but it's difficult language. Sorry about that. Um, and as for the Americans, basically, I, you know, it's, you know, I, you know, they just bombed us <laughs> in Afghanistan just three months ago. So. 
And yeah, the memories of those cruise missiles basically still fresh in my mind. And so... Um, That's the nicest thing you've said about the Americans yet. So we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, I'll make sure you don't have to say anymore just so, so everyone yeah. wasn't pissed off. So, so, so I thought, you know, it's a great ask, uh, you know, if I have to go to the U.S. And so I decided to go to the U.K. And, um, and when I arrived there, I remember that I hid in my friend's house uh, before I was escorted to the... Um, uh, before I was escorted to uh, the intelligence headquarters, floppy disks. I know I, we, we, it sounds ancient now for, <laughs> to many of the listeners, but floppy disks, you know, containing Al-Qaeda's program uh, in developing explosives, chemical weapons, poisons, and biological weapons, all of it. So I decided that, you know, this will be uh, the first gift I give to my host there in the UK you know, because if I'm landing there, I might as well bring a gift. You know, you, you right. don't you don't go to someone's home right. without having a box of chocolate with you, basically. And I thought, basically, this is my box of chocolate. You know, this is. You know, and I remember when I arrived, I realized it was December 16. Yet I wasn't dressed as Santa. Uh, so, <laughs> so, but nonetheless, you know, the two officials from MI5 and MI6 counterterrorism, when I presented uh, presented them with this at the airport. Um, the, you know, their faces, you know, told me everything I needed to know, that it was Christmas coming early. Early Christmas. So I want to make people read the book to look at all the stuff that you did working for, for MI6. But I do want to fast forward to the summer of 2001, uh, because I think this, this for American listeners, certainly and for our listeners around the world, will really resonate. And a lot of people have heard that there was warning that was coming in during the summer of 2001 before 9-11. Uh, a lot of people may know about kind of the end results of that warning, whether it's the August 6th briefing, uh, you know, Bin Laden determined to attack in the United States, whether it's the blinking red ideas that, you know, George Tenet and others were saying, here it comes. And you contributed to a lot of that information. So let's talk about the summer of 2001 and what you were told that tipped you off that something big was coming. The first sign where things being moved out of the camps. That's the first thing. Um, munitions, heavy weaponry, weapons, uh, you know, some of the trucks, even some of the laptops and uh, the, uh, you know, computers. So this movement was a bit, you know, giving the game away that they are expecting some sort of retaliation. But then I went to Tarnak uh, and there I was summoned to the study of Abu Hafsa Masri, the deputy leader of Al-Qaeda at that time. And Abu Hafsa Masri, you know, is someone who is not exactly a very humorous person. He just basically tells you exactly what to do, you know, very precise, concise, doesn't mince his word, doesn't suffer fools gladly. So that's the kind of person. And he doesn't smile that much. So it was June of 2001. And I remember he asked me the question. He said, you know, he asked, asking me about when I'm going back to London, because at the time my cover story for uh, Al-Qaeda, and that is a normal cover story, many people were doing it, is that we were always paired into two. And if you are always abroad and someone else in Afghanistan, then you must establish a business between you two. Mm. So export, import, especially of luxury food items, nuts, you know, pink salt from the Himalayas and all of that, and honey and all of that. So... I was doing that kind of work. So that allowed me to be in and out of Afghanistan, into Europe, into Arabia. So it was the perfect cover. So 
he told me, when will you be in London? And I said, I will be there just within maybe a week or so. You know, within days, I will be there. He said, I want you to deliver a message to four individuals. And this message is simple. These individuals were in the UK and they need to sort out their affairs and bring their families and themselves to Afghanistan before the end of August. Simple. That's a message. So I said, yes, I will do it. I will deliver the message. And then he said something else. He said, the most important thing to know is that something big, you know, is about to happen. And therefore, I want you to know that if and when the Americans end up here in Afghanistan, do not be tempted to come and join us and fight the jihad with us here. Stay where you are. Stay in your post. Do not be tempted to come to us. We will contact you. And he gave you an end of August deadline to tell the people inside the UK. Um, this is the number two guy at Al-Qaeda. So why didn't you know the whole plan, right? You're talking to the number two guy at Al-Qaeda. It seems like you having access to that level of person, you would have been able to go back and tell the British planes crashing in the buildings on September 11th on a Tuesday morning. Why didn't you, you were able to provide that kind of information, which is pretty important. But as we know now, the argument, and I think it's a legitimate argument was, you can tell us it's coming, but unless you tell us what it is and when it is and how it yeah. is, there's not shit we can do about it. So why did you, with access to the number two guy, not know the plan? Because you will only know the plan if you were party to the, to the plan from the beginning. So since I wasn't part of external operations in Al-Qaeda, since I wasn't part of the financial uh, arm of Al-Qaeda, I was part of the WMD part of Al-Qaeda, therefore I wasn't part of the plan. If I was in the financial part of it, I would have at least been tasked by sending maybe one or two payments uh, to uh, the, uh, the hijackers, let's put it this way, in the US. And that could have unraveled the whole uh, plot. But unfortunately, I wasn't. This is a problem with spying on an organization like Al-Qaeda that was operating in Afghanistan, which was a black hole of mm -hmm. communications. You cannot communicate. Once you are in Afghanistan, there is no way you can communicate. One of the things is that my handlers were always happy with my cover story doing business in and out of Afghanistan was that, you know, it gave me the ability to be out. It's like being submerged underwater. You can't breathe and then you, your head is out of the water. You can breathe and you can talk to them and then you're submerged again. And it's like this. It's like swimming, submerging yourself, you know, then through the surface, breathe, submerge again. That had its own disadvantages. Yes, you can rise in the ranks within Al-Qaeda if you stay there full time. But if you stay there full time, how can you communicate? Right. Like, so if you were in the finance department, you were sending money to Mohammed Atta in the United States, you might know that, but you can't report it. I can't report it. Yeah. Exactly. So that's why Afghanistan was the most ideal, ideal uh, location for Al-Qaeda to operate from. Because, you know, even if you're spying on them, you know, no one could, you know, uh, no, no one, you can't even communicate to your handlers, basically, the information. And if there is something urgent, how do you do it? You, you know, you, your exit in and out of Afghanistan is monitored all the time. You know, they, will not, they might say no. Sometimes, basically, you can use, you know, um, excuses like breaking your glasses so you can go to, <laughs> to Pakistan and get a new pair. And during your time, you can actually talk with them. But the problem is, 
if you rise within the ranks of Al-Qaeda, you become their prisoner. Right. And as a result, you cannot communicate properly. And during my time there, spying, you know, for uh, the West from, uh, you know, 1999 all the way until 2001, during that period, five, you know, spies inside Al-Qaeda were caught and were given the tribunal and were executed. Uh, you know, three from Jordan, two from Egypt. Uh, they were spying for the Jordanian and Egyptian in, uh, intelligence services. You know, so, and they were there most of the time. Uh, and how were they caught? Because they were using satellite phones, yeah. you know, in order to communicate. And that gave the game away. Um, so, you know, it was the balancing the sa my safety and at the same time, you know, a flexibility of being in and out with at the same time uh, being uh, able to report uh, on threats basically coming from there. So I didn't know the plan. And Al-Qaeda at the time used to write on every single door on many of the walls within the camps, especially in Tarnak, you only need to know what you need to know. It's like the signs of the Pentagon and at CIA, <laughs> where it's the whole idea of, you know, keep your mouth shut, same thing in the caves in Al-Qaeda. Let me ask one final question mm -hmm. before we wrap this up. And there's, to, to give again the listener, there's 10 times as much cool stuff in the book uh, that you need to look at, but we're kind of doing this short version here. You had been in Al-Qaeda or knowing the people within Al-Qaeda by 2001 for about five years. How surprised were you about 9-11 and how were they able to pull off that kind of an attack? I mean, no one knew them better than you did, at least that had been working with the West. How big of a surprise was the ability to do an attack of that scale to you? I was shocked, but not surprised. Because uh, using airplanes, you know, as um, guided missiles against buildings, that sounded as diabolical as what Al-Qaeda would do. And somehow I detected the hands of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed even then because he was always obsessed with aviation. And his cousin Ramzi Youssef was obsessed with both aviation and the World Trade Center. So that's the reality. I mean, as soon as I saw, I remember I was in a walking uh, Oxford Street in London, and I saw people congregating over a shop window looking at a TV screen. Uh, and I, as soon as I saw the smoke at the top of the uh, World Trade Center, I immediately said Al-Qaeda. I immediately said to myself, this is Al-Qaeda, that's it. This is the one, this is what Abu Hafs was saying. This is a big thing. And, you know, when I saw the planes striking the uh, towers, I just realized that today the world has changed. Mm -hmm forever and the world will never be the same again and then my phone was ringing my handlers right you know come to the office so yeah it's, it's pretty extraordinary though because you know they came to afghanistan as you described as refugees indeed and then within five years they were taking down buildings in new york city and hitting the pentagon in here here in dc absolutely but if you think about it i remember if you remember Ramzi Youssef, you know, in the Philippines when he was going in Manila and everything, he looked so ordinary, so scrawny, so, you know, unremarkable. And yet his mind was full of ideas, you know, that one of them almost came to fruition in trying to bring down, you know, the World Trade Center using a massive bomb in the car park. Um, and also trying to bring down, you know, several airliners over the uh, Pacific, uh, trying to assassinate the Pope and all of that. I mean, you know, and, he, and if you look at him in the street, you will never even look, you know, twice at him. So really, 
you know, it seems that sometimes history is shaped by the underdogs right. here. The book is Nine Lives. My time is the West's top spy inside Al-Qaeda. The authors, Eamon Dean, along with Paul Cruikshank and Tim Lister. Eamon, thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us. We really appreciate it. And I cannot overestimate, uh, 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 emphasize how important this book is to read, to, to understand uh, the last 15 years of American counterterrorism policy, just kind of getting inside the heads of those who were part of this operation and then decided to come out and look at things from a very different perspective. So uh, the book is out now. Um, Eamon, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me.